Hello, hello. Welcome again to another exciting episode of the Nailed It Orthopedic Podcast. We are so glad to have you guys back. We're doing so great. Y'all doing so great. Uh, we're getting awesome feedback from you all. We're going to keep coming with more as much as we can. Uh, so thank you again. Let me introduce myself to those who might be new to the podcast. My name is Dr. Fitz. Uh, and I have with me my uh, subpar co-host. I'm just he's, he's, he's pretty awesome. Uh, my my co-host here, and Dr. Cole. Hello, hello. Yeah, I'm just kidding. He's he's a great guy. I taught him everything he knows. So you know, mm-hmm. he's, he's just chip off the old block. But uh, <laughs> yeah, Cody. Before we get too too far in this uh, in this talk, man, we were just talking about this, and I figured it'd be something good to to bring on air. So, you know, we're getting a little bit further along in our process with this uh, residency thing. Uh, Tell me some of the the experiences you had with medical students who've been rotating with you. Uh, You know, some of the the good things that they've done and some of the ones that maybe not so good. Ah, the med students. Yeah, I remember back in the day when you were just a young med student. I was shepherding you through your way to orthopedics, man. Uh, I remember it was like it was yesterday. Oh, uh, <laughs> but now nah, these uh these med students, I, I think um, well right now how we're doing is that you know with the whole COVID era, you, you can't really go out and do away rotation, so people just rotated their home programs. But I think you know in general what I've seen with with med students, the good ones are the ones that anticipate needs. Um, you know, they have your stuff ready for you before you even think about it. They have your splint rolled out. You know, they maybe even started working on a note. You know, they, they kind of thought ahead of what the next step would be. And the bad ones, I remember one time we were doing some distal radius, and uh, I think we were probably putting in a cast, reducing it and putting in a cast or a sugar tongue, one of the two. And it must be about 5 o'clock, and, you know, we're halfway in it. You know, we got, you know, the, we just did a hematoma block, hung them up, and we're about to put this cast on due to reduction and another med student walks up and, you know, because they, they switch, you know, the, the evening person comes for the night call. And the guy that had seen the console with me started working it up. He goes, all right, man, I'm out. Peace. And then he just dipped out <laughs> like oh during goodness. the middle during the middle of the you know reduction. We're still seeing this patient. The other guy hasn't even like put his bag and all that stuff down yet. And I was like, hmm, I don't know about this guy. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know about this one. So, yeah, that, that might not be a good thing to do, huh? Yeah, so, so you know. Yeah, and I don't know. At the same time, you got to remember, everyone uh, doesn't want to be an orthopedic doctor. And, you know, we have people who rotate sometimes because it's just part of their curriculum. But I think it's probably, you know, some certain things that you probably should just do on every rotation that you're on. You know, you should probably kind of, you know, you don't have to tell us that you're into ortho. I'm like, Oh, that's totally fine that you're into ENT or something. All right. Well, that's great. You know, but for that short period of time, you have to kind of take the role of, of a, you know, orthopedic resident. That's that's how you learn the most from the rotation. That's how you get the most from it. And it's, it's better for you. It's better for us. It makes things easier for us to teach you. And, uh, you know, you can always get a little something from just about any 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 new topic, any new uh, specialty, even if you want to do something different, just try your best, try hard. Uh, oh, no, this kid, this kid wanted to go to ortho for sure. <laughs> oh, well. He definitely wanted to go to ortho, yeah. And, and see, that, in, in those cases, those would be the guys who might have like the, the you know, 270 on yeah. step one, but step. don't match. Right. It's like, everybody like, man, what is, it? what is it about this kid? How did he not match? Like, that doesn't make any sense. And then you hear about things like that, like, oh, that, that might have had something to do with it. But, you know, this exactly. is actually like a popular topic. We, we, 
get I get questions about this all the time. I'm sure uh, Dr. Cole get them as well. Uh, but good thing is we actually did do a a talk about this on our um, on our website at NailedItOrtho.com. It's pretty much uh, the guide on how to crush your ortho subclass. Uh, I think it's nailed it. Let's see, nailedithortho.com forward slash crushaways forward slash, but or you can just go to our website and find it. But oh yeah, yeah. just well, let's uh, get in. Let's, let's get, get into, into it. Let's get into it for the day. Um, so our topic today, we're going to talk about operative treatment of ACL injuries with Dr. Christopher Cook. Now, if you've been listening to the show, you know we had our introductory episode to ACLs and injuries with Dr. Boniag, which he did an excellent job at. And this one's kind of looking more at the operative side. And we have Dr. Christopher Cook, who did an excellent job in this uh, in this podcast episode. He's a sports medicine doctor. He received his medical degree from Wayne State University uh, School of Medicine, also did residency there in orthopedics. And he completed his fellowship in orthopedic uh, sports medicine at the Kerlin Job Orthopedic Clinic over in L.A. Um, and now his practice is currently in Michigan. But again, you know, we talk about, you know, treatment options, talk about graft selections, uh, uh, tunnel choices. So, you know, you guys enjoy this episode and don't forget to subscribe. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Welcome to another episode of Nailed It Orthopedic Podcast. We have another great talk in store for you guys today, and I'm so glad we have Dr. Cook here with us today. He's going to speak with us uh, about ACL, so really looking forward to it, and thank you, Dr. Cook, for being a part of the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, and uh, I know some of the listeners might know, you know, they might have heard our previous ACL talk, but this one, I think we're going to go a little bit more in detail with some of the techniques with reconstructions and go into kind of the pediatric side of things as well. Oh, um, it's going to be a good one. It's going to yes, be good. Absolutely. So before we get going too far, Dr. Cook, we, like I said, we always start off with some, you know, some simple basic questions here just to kind of get to know you a little bit better. Uh, this one here, it might take you a second because it's, it's kind of coming from nowhere. I know it would take me a second to think about it, but uh, what book have you read that's been the most meaningful to you, you think? That's a great question right there. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of books you can choose from, both medical and non-medical. I'll tell you, whatever, for whatever reason, the first thing that stuck out of my head was a book I received in high school called uh, How to Make Friends and Influence People, which sounds like an odd choice, but uh, I think it taught you how to talk to people and read their emotions, and especially in the medical field, orthopedic surgery. Um, you know, we all know the same information. We know the anatomy. We know the surgical indications and complications, but no one ever teaches you how to talk to people. And I think that not only do you have to treat people well, you have to kind of read them, uh, find out if they're hesitant, find out if they're scared, find out if they're overconfident. And based on your conversations, you know exactly how to proceed with the conversation. So I think that helps you both in the clinic and not in the clinic, but I think that book still has a great influence on me to this day. Yeah, that's a that's a great book. I actually read that by Dale Carnegie. Yeah, um, yeah, it's, it's a great book. Uh, I would suggest any anybody listening to this go out and read it. You know, it teaches you a lot of a lot of the basics, kind of like you just said, and just just how to talk to people. You know, um, perfect. Well, let's get into the the second question we have is 
Another question, do you have a favorite movie series or just a favorite movie that you like to watch? Oh, it's a great question. We probably could have several podcasts just on, just on that. <laughs> um, you know, obviously a lot of great choices. For whatever reason, once again, six on my head, my brother and I love turning off our brains for two hours and watching the Fast and Furious movies. I'll, yeah. I'll never claim that they're fantastic movies, but they're entertaining. You know what you're getting, and uh, I will continue to watch them as they keep making them. Oh, that's a good one. I like those Fast and Furious movies. Uh, rest in peace to Paul Walker. But those are those are great, um, great movies. And uh, the last one we we're kind of talking to a little bit before we went live here, before we started to record. Uh, what what kind of got you into sports? What made you want to go into that field? Great question. I think almost every single medical student who considers orthopedic surgery has some sort of athletic background. It's just kind of a natural draw to orthopedic surgery, uh, to the athletic body, to anatomy. I, uh, I was a high school and collegiate athlete. Um, I've loved sports my entire life. And when I came to the sad realization, that I probably couldn't make my living playing professional sports, but I loved the idea of going to medicine. It, it just drew me. Um, and the, uh, complications and the difficulty of, of becoming an orthopedic surgeon and the challenges of becoming a great orthopedic surgeon, but the triumphs of helping those high school, college professional athletes go from an area where they're vulnerable and injured and can't perform to their highest level and assisting them get back to or even above where they were. I mean, that's the most gratifying thing in my life right now. And uh, the more I experience it, the more I, want, I, I look forward to doing it more. So the background in athletics kind of drew me to orthopedic surgery. Oh, man, I love it. That's a great answer. You know, people, if you're listening, you have athletic background. This may be you. You may be the next orthopedic sports surgeon. <laughs> yes. uh, so let's let's get into the topic for today. I know we had a previous talk on ACLs, but now we're actually going to dive a little bit deeper into it. And I'm really looking forward to it. So we'll kind of just start out with a with just a little case um, case example or case uh, case report. Uh, and then get into the topic. So, you know, say we have a 25-year-old female, played soccer. She was coming, she was running, ended up twisting, hearing a loud pop in her knee, uh, unable to ambulate. She comes to your office. What are, just, just briefly, what are some, you know, quick things that we'd be on the lookout for, for, you know, on physical exam or any special tests, you know? Great question. Uh, and and when you say female, adolescent or 20-year-old athlete, soccer play, planted her to pop, you almost already know your diagnosis, but you want to make sure you do the basic things because even though it's most likely ACL or meniscal nature, you don't want to miss anything. So uh, x-rays first, make sure you're not missing any uh, easy fracture dislocation. Sometimes you can see an avulsion fracture to visit ligament muscle tear. Um, observation, looking for swelling, looking for deformity, uh, range of motion. Usually when someone comes to your office within a week of uh, this type of injury, they're not going to have full range of motion. So the question is, are they lacking range of motion because of the injury and swelling? Mm-hmm. Or is there a concomitant injury like a meniscus or cartilage lesion that are preventing them from obtaining full extension or flexion? Uh, once you've looked at those things, you can always look at strength, knee flexion, extension, but it all comes down to your ligament tests. Um, I go through the same routine with every single patient, regardless of what knee pathology they have. Uh, but while they're laying supine with a straight leg or somewhat straight legged, I do a Lachman exam, which you take uh, your arm on the outside. So if it's a right knee, I take my left arm and put it on their femur, put my right arm on their tibia. As I stabilize the femur with my left arm, I pull towards me or anteriorly with my right arm and I see how much excess translation they have in the tibia. Uh, We actually have a scale to measure this, which I don't love because 
I like going to the opposite unaffected side and I gauge how much excess excursion they have by their normal side. And allotment is the most sensitive and specific test we have for a possible ACL tear, but still, I also do an anterior drawer where I flex their knee about 50 to 70 degrees and once again stabilize the femur, pull on the tibia. And then I do a pivot shift as well where I uh, do a rotation from extension to flexion with their tibia, trying to find out if they've got a rotational component of their knee that's out. And, and together, these three tests, along with ruling out other injuries, can give me a pretty secure exam if I have an ACL tear or not before I get advanced imaging. And, and can we can we go about that? How do you do that pivot shift test one more time just for those listening that, um, you know, like what are the what's the technique to do that exam? Absolutely. And it's actually a little complicated and, and it took me a while to, to completely understand the anatomy behind it. But I start um, with their knee in full extension. They have to be relaxed, and sometimes that's tough to do after an ACL test or even in the office. So that's one of the reasons you always do a pivot shift under anesthesia in the OR before a case. Uh, I slowly uh, internally rotate their tibia, put a valgus stress from lateral to medial on their knee, and I go from extension to flexion. And right when you get about to 20 to 30 degrees of flexion, you'll feel the tibia kind of reduce uh, and that's a positive pivot shift where the ACL is not present enough to prevent that rotation anymore. Right, right. That's okay. awesome. Yeah, that was a that that's an awesome, uh, you know, description because, like you say, even to this point, I still have a difficult time just kind of uh, getting the pivot shift test right. But I do try to do it every every patient that I know we're we're taking to the OR and they have some kind of ACL pathology. Definitely try to go for that just to kind of practice my technique. That's a great habit to get in with. Uh, if you are doing a sports case in the OR before, after the patient's asleep, but before you do the surgery, do a examination under anesthesia. Look for range of motion and look at for ligamentous laxity, including the pivot. Because I'll be honest with you, I, I did about 130 ACLs last year, and I'm not sure how many positive pivot shifts I got in the office, mm -hmm. but I got one under virtually every patient in the OR. So if you learn how to do it in the OR, you can still do it in the office. And if they're relaxed, uh, you may get a positive one, but I think it's important to practice it first in a setting which protects you a little more, which you'll, you'll have an easier chance of getting a positive test without harming the patient. Absolutely. And just for the sake of time, I know we, we previously mentioned, you know, which bundle is usually uh, more involved in which test and inflection and extension in our past video. So we don't have to go through that this time. We even mentioned imaging in the past and what to look for on the x-rays as well as what to look for on MRI. Uh, but getting to kind of the, the, the bulk of this particular talk, uh, just to talk about some of the treatment options, kind of what, what, what runs through your mind as far as trying to decide going non-operative versus operative management for, for your patients with these ACL tears? So when I first started my practice, I, I kind of thought if they're going to come see me and they have an ACL tear, they should be reconstructed and occasionally repaired. And I think as I become more experienced and, and hopefully a little wiser, I've realized that not everybody needs an ACL reconstructed, repaired. And sometimes you actually might be doing harm to your patient by doing so. I, um, I really strongly recommended for my adolescent 
and even 20, 30, and 40-year-old patients who are extremely active, especially if they do pivoting sports, your basketball, volleyball, lacrosse, soccer, football. But if I get somebody who's a marathon runner, a biker, a swimmer, I tell them that you may not need it, and with appropriate physical therapy embracing, you might be able to do your ACL-independent sports. And, and I think it's important to take the patient's age, activity level, sport of choice, and then obviously their opinion. If, if there's somebody who say, you know, I, I don't think I'll feel comfortable in life not having an ACL. I don't want to worry about pivoting or turning real quickly and have my knee giving way. I think they're more adequate for a discussion on reconstruction. If there's somebody who says, I can't take time off to do surgery. I can't do the rehab. I, uh, I don't like pain. I, I, you know, I'm not going to put the work in. Then there's somebody that you probably should not op until they're ready because I tell people an ACL is a one to two year process. And even though every once in a while we have somebody go back to play at six months and even sometimes a little earlier, you got to be ready to dedicate the time and resources. And, and if they're not, then I, then I don't think you should operate on them as, as attractive as it might be to do an ACL reconstruction. You need to have, um, to be, you have to be reserved to make sure you pick the right patient and right activity level. Right. And I think that's a, that's a good point in, in realizing that not everybody needs to be operated on or not every ACL tear needs to be operated on. Um, contrary to that last statement, for the ones that we do get operated on or the ones that we do, do elect to undergo operative intervention, can we kind of talk about the different graft types and what graft types, you know, the pros and cons and, you know, what the gold standard are? Can, can we kind of go over that? Because we always hear about it, but kind of want to go kind of further into, into depth. Yeah, and, that, and that's fairly objective. So I'll give you a little bit of the history, then I'll give you my preferences. But I was trained uh, both in Detroit and Los Angeles, and there's definitely a West Coast bias compared to East Coast, compared to down South. And, and it matters where you train for what you use. But there's autograft, which is tissue from the patient's own body. And there's allograft from a cadaver. And, and when you're talking autograft, throughout the years, we focused on two to three main graphs. Uh, the number one most common one is the middle third of your patellar tendon with some bone from your patella and some bone from your tibial tubercle. And this is the workhorse and this is the mainstay. And basically any contact athlete, especially at a high school, college, professional level, at least to me, gets this graft. Uh, we found that uh, bone heals to bone a little quicker and more effectively than soft tissue. Uh, we found that it's um, a little quicker and a little stronger theoretically when it heals in a lab by itself, a hamstring might be stronger and it withstand more, more load, but a, a BTB or bone patellar tendon bone, uh, autograph seems to be a little stronger in our contact athletes. Um, now there are some complications. It's fairly easy to harvest, but when I say middle third of the patella, usually that's 10 millimeters wide, but I've seen 25 millimeter wide patellas. I've seen 40 millimeter wide patellas. So you do have to have a little bit of um, an art form to take in the graft. And mm -hmm. as far as taking the bone from the patella, the patella is actually a very small bone. If you take too much, you can lead to either a patellar tendon rupture or a patella fracture. Um, famous patient, this doesn't violate hip at all, but Jerry Rice, one of the greatest wide receivers of all time, yeah. had a BTB autographed of his uh, ACL, went back a little early, caught a touchdown pass and landed on his knees and fractured his patella. So mm -hmm. there definitely are some risks to doing this graft. It's a larger anterior knee incision, which can be a little more painful, lead to anterior knee pain, lead to discomfort while kneeling, even some increased stiffness. But me at age 38, and not as active as the majority of my patients, to this day, I still choose this graft because I believe it is the strongest graft. And, and a couple of the other options are a hamstring graft. Uh, you can take 
uh, the gracilis and the semitendinosus. You can double, triple, or quadruple it over itself as long as you have enough length to make a strong hamstring graft, which if you quadruple it in a lab is actually stronger a uh, load to failure than a patellar tendon graft, but a hamstring graft can stretch a little bit and you have a little bit of limitations on how you fixate it. Uh, and then finally, there's a quadricep tendon graft, which is gaining popularity, which you take a little bit of the distal quadriceps with or without the bone and you make it into a new autograft. And so those options are all fairly outstanding. Use your own tissue. It incorporates a little quicker, um, lower re-rupture uh, odds, um, allograft. You can use uh, a bone patellar tendon bone, a hamstrings, a quadriceps. I actually prefer when I do do an allograft, and I do do it on my older, less active patients who still fulfill the requirement for an ACL reconstruction. I actually would do an Achilles allograft. That's how I was taught at the Curlin Job Institute in Los Angeles. It allows me to have bone on one end to fixate to the femur, soft tissue through the tibia. I feel fairly comfortable with it, so that's what I use, but I've seen uh, my partners use a, a plethora of different grafts, and so an allograft is a little more up in the air, but as far as autograft, probably about 50 to 60% of the country does BTB, another 30 or 40% does hamstring, then about 5% does quadriceps. And, and given those pros and cons, how do you choose which patient is getting which graft? You know, like how do you choose, like, okay, for this patient, we think we should try an Achilles tendon um, allograft versus you know, versus, hey, we should probably try a quadruple tendon hamstring graft. So right around the age of 35 to 40, that's when the re-rupture rates start to equalize or at least come close between an autograft and allograft. If you're, if you're a teenager, you're never going to get an allograft from me. If you refuse an autograft, that's fine. I'll find you a different surgeon. I just, I think the rate of re-rupture is so high that'd be irresponsible of me. In your 20s and 30s, um, the re-rupture rate is still much, much higher with an allograft. So uh, there's really not many situations I could be talked into it. But once we get to 35 or 40, they're fairly similar. So I talk to the patients. I give them the pros and cons. And I I'm, a, I'm a big believer in, in giving patients the options and recommendations, but I'll never make a decision for them. So if I've got a 40-year-old who wants an allograft, I make sure we understand the pros and cons and make sure their activities are conducive to it. I've had 60 and 70-year-olds who are really active who want autographs. And I just make sure they, they understand it. But the more pivoting sports, your football, soccer, basketball, volleyball, lacrosse, those are the ones, especially contact sports, I really recommend autographed. Um, your other sports where you might pivot but not have as much contact, like I said, you're running, swimming, cycling, um, even a couple, maybe a little tennis um, and stuff like that. Maybe I could go a little bit on allograft. Uh, but I, if I've got a varsity athlete, if I've got a young person who really loves playing those contact sports, they're going to get a BTB from me every time unless they tell me that they're afraid of anterior knee pain, unless they tell me they're afraid to have a bigger incision or have pain while kneeling, then I'll educate them on a hamstrings graft. And I've done that for some of my non-contact athletes and they've done very well with it. Okay. And and I, I love how you just explained a lot of, uh, at least you've touched on a lot of points that I've seen in questions as far as like the anterior knee pain with the, with the bone patella bone grafts, um, as far as the quadruple tendon hamstring in the lab, having a, having a higher maximum load to failure. And then as, high as, as far as having higher re-rupture rates in, uh, in a lot of the allografts, those are things I was asked a lot um, in those questions. Um, now, as far as, as far as allografts and processing, does it, does it matter kind of how you process? I know there's a couple different ways to process these graphs. Absolutely. And that's another reason autograft is, is, is so preferential. You don't have to worry about where the graph came from, ensuring that it was tested and negative for any disease. You don't have to worry about freezing or radiation or chemical treatment. Um, you know, to me, if I'm going to use a graft, it, it, it can't be radiated. It can't be treated with 
carbon dioxide. It can't be treated with chemicals that could decrease the ability of cells to um, reproduce and, and become part of the body. It can't be stiff. It can't be weak because I refuse to put a patient through a surgery with a compromised graft. So if I can get a fairly fresh graft that instead of um, frozen is kind of, you know, just put in, in the freezer um, temporarily or, or even uh, refrigerated appropriate temperature. That's my preference. I'll never use an expired graft. I actually won't really use a graft more than a couple weeks old. So I've got a pretty good relationship with our local tissue banks. And if I'm going to do an allograft, I'll make sure my hospital has a fairly fresh graft. And if not, I'll delay the surgery. So um, I know other parts of the world, um, and even the country, they're not as, as lucky as that. But if I'm going to put somebody through a surgery, and an ACL is a, is a big surgery, I'm not going to allow processing of a graft to give them an increased chance of failure. Absolutely. Okay. I think that was a pretty good, a pretty great overview of graft choice and how to choose. Uh, so going to the next step, say we got which graft we want to go with. Uh, can we talk about the actual technique? for the surgery and things like tunnel placement and how, how pretty much how you go about that. that absolutely. And then that's probably my favorite part of an ACL surgery is, is the, the art form becomes where to put your tunnel. Cause if you're off by a millimeter or two, the wrong direction, uh, it can increase the chance of stiffness or laxity or failure. And, um, and I certainly don't claim to be an expert. I, I do about as many ACLs in the state of Michigan as anyone else. And, and I'm fairly young in my career. I'm still under 500, but, uh, but I've learned so much from every ACL, and, and I continue to. And we've got so many great people in this country doing research on the right place to put the tunnel as we're, we're discovering new things all the time. But we really have improved over the last 10 to 20 years finding the anatomic footprint. So um, I'll, start, uh, I'll start on the tibia because most of us do that tibial tunnel first. Um, the great part about the ACL is usually it tears or stretches from the middle of the ACL or it avulses off the femur, but you normally have a tibial stump. So the easiest way to figure out where to put your new tibial tunnel for the graft is find the old tibial stump and that's your new footprint. If that's good enough for God put their ACL, that's good enough for me. And you can kind of cheat a little bit and preserve that stump. And as you drill that tibial tunnel, you can put your guide right over the old stump. And, and I know we'll touch a pediatrics in a second. There's actually some new research that if you preserve that stump and put the new graft through it, the old ACL tibial stump will grow to the new graft. It can give you some increased proprioception. But if you're not lucky enough to have that tibial stump, there's a couple different places you can look. Traditionally, what we did was we focused on the lateral meniscus. Uh, you look to the anterior horn, approximately at the posterior border, uh, and went over to the, to the middle of, of the joint by the eminence and kind of use that as your landmark. A recent LaProd study out of uh, Denver has shown that that could be a little variable, so maybe that shouldn't be the only landmark you use, but that's a really easy one because when you're holding your arthroscopy camera, you can simply look at the middle of the tibia, look over at the lateral meniscus, look back and forth and make sure you're fairly lined up. You want to be approximately a center uh, anterior to the anterior border of the PCL, and the PCL is usually a very easy structure to find. And you want to be about eight to nine millimeters, not quite a centimeter posterior to the intermeniscal ligament, which you don't always see. But I think if you're approximately halfway between the PCL and the intermeniscal ligament, um, you're a little anterior to the medial eminence and you're lined up approximately with the posterior aspect of the anterior horn and lateral meniscus, you're in a pretty good spot for your tibial tunnel. Like I said, if you can preserve the stump and drill right through it, then you're, then you're hitting the bullseye every single time. And, and that study that you were referring to, uh, it has a name. Uh, is that the, 
I don't know, is it the bear trial or something like that? Yes, the bear trial. Um, oh, man. Uh, really- you know, I, I, forgot, uh, her, I forgot her last name, but she came and spoke in Detroit a couple months ago. And I've actually been focusing on this research for a couple of years. It's in its third stage where there's several different um, places across the country doing these trials. And it's where you actually um, try to repair the native ACL, then you put a conduit around it. Uh, but they found that if you drill through the tibial stump, similarly, you can uh, try to uh, preserve some of the proprioception to the tibial stump. But they're doing a lot of great work, primarily with pediatric ACLs, but they think this will go on for adult as well, where the more the native tissue you can preserve, uh, the better the ACL will be, not from just a structural standpoint, but from a proprioception standpoint as well. Absolutely. I've heard, I've heard some, uh, some of my attendants talk about it and there are some different opinions on it, but, uh, definitely putting out some good work from that. So awesome. I'm glad, I'm glad that you, you mentioned that, uh, on, on the uh, show here. Yeah. If Uh, I could talk about the femur for a second, because femur is a little more difficult. Uh, in the back of the femur, there's actually two different ridges and you guys are residents and, and I was a resident at one point and (laughs) one of the ridges is called residence ridge, which the reason it's called that is there's so much periosteum and soft tissue and sometimes scarred ACL and even PCL in the posterior aspect of the distal femur that if you don't take that extra time to clean off the entire femur, you might think that bump is more of the um, is more of the uh, interconjular ridge or the space in between the two bundles of, uh, of the actual uh, ACL, you might think that that is the anatomic um, insertion point, and that's where you put your femoral tunnel, and that's actually the very anterior landmark. So you have so much more femur behind it, you need to clean that off. And, and we obviously don't like to put uh, our heat probe or even our shaver in the back of the knee because we have the popliteal artery and a couple nervous structures. Uh, I personally learned from uh, Dr. Daniel Karazi, who's the former uh, Laker doctor in Los Angeles, I take a, um, a real blunt instrument, um, not quite a cob, but maybe a curette, and I go to the back of the knee and I scrape that material off until I can see around the femur. And that way, I'm in the very back of the femur. And, um, and a good place to put your graft in the very back of the femur is you only need between one to two millimeters of bone between the very back of the femur and the posterior aspect of your tunnel. And everyone always thinks that they're going to go to posterior and get what they call is wall blowout, where your tunnel isn't quite circular encased in bone. Some of it's in the back of the femur, and that can lead to graft instability. But I don't think you realize how much room you have in the back of the femur. And as long as you have one to two millimeters of bone, which is not that much, your graft is, is very well intact. And then finally, we can talk about this more in a second, but how you fix your graft, whether you or how you drill your femoral tunnel, whether you drill from the tibial tunnel, whether you drill from an anterior medial portal, or whether you drill from the outside in, um, we know that you don't want a vertical tunnel. Uh, it's very easy to put a vertical tunnel in the femur, but if you do that, you'll lose the rotational stability of an ACL, and it's very easy to have a pivot and re-tear the ACL. Um, you really want it more of an angle. Uh, if you have a left knee, you want it two. Sometimes I'll even put it to 30. If you have a right knee, you want it 10, sometimes 930. And if you have an anatomic placement of the tunnel and an anatomic angle in the coronal plane, that decreases your decreases your chance for re-rupture in the future. So it's very technical, and there's about 100 steps in your ACL, um, but these are some of the most important ones right there is getting proper visualization and getting proper drill angle on your femur. So for those that were listening and didn't catch that, I think some important things that you were just saying, you want at least one to two millimeters of bone uh, left of the tunnel from the posterior aspect going to the posterior cortex of the femur. And then you're saying on the coronal plane, um, 
if you have a right knee, you're going to be placed. If you have a right or left knee, you're going to be placing it either at the two or the ten o'clock position. Uh, those are some important points, and I think I think that was I think that was some great um, some great tips right there. And, and and I really liked how you covered that. I really think you you definitely got got into it. And um, and so when you're talking about how you drill those tunnels, uh, you said sometimes you can kind of go transtibial versus starting in a joint as far as your femoral tunnel. Correct. Yeah, the tradition was uh, once we started doing arthroscopic ACL reconstructions about 20, 30 years ago, once we drilled the tibial tunnel, you could simply put the drill through the tibial tunnel into the joint, into the femur, and drill your femoral tunnel. And it worked fairly well. ACL reconstructions were about 70 to 80% uh, accurate, and, and patients went back to sports and they did well, but it wasn't an anatomic placement. It was too vertical. So what we started doing about 10, 15 years ago is drilling the femoral tunnel through an anterior medial portal. And that's actually the way I was taught in my fellowship. Uh, as long as you can get that drill around the medial femoral condyle and not skive or hit the cartilage, usually you get a pretty good placement on the femur and can drill a good tunnel. Um, I actually have changed my technique since I've been in practice. I did my first 20 or 30 ACLs that way. There's a lot more technicality. You have to hyperflex the tibia. You have to have good help in the OR to hold the camera, drill, and be on the femur to, to pull the drill bit out. I've switched to an outside-in guide. What I do now is I, I have a guide on the inside of the knee that I place on the femur where I want my tunnel. I, have a very, I, I make a poke hole through the lateral aspect of the femur through the IT band, and I drill a pin down through the femur that comes out in the joint where I want my tunnel. Um, and it's, it, there's a lot of different companies that make it, uh, to, to, they withhold all trade names. It's basically a retro cutter. Once the pin goes into the joint, I can flip a button on it, and my pin, which might only be two or three millimeters in diameter, all of a sudden flips a button, and it can drill a larger tunnel backwards. I can drill a 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 millimeter socket, which goes from the inside of the joint to the outside, but it stops before you hit the cortex, so I still have a good place to put my graft, and I just felt that with only one or two assistants in the OR, this helped me make the most accurate femoral tunnel possible, um, and I think patients appreciate it as well because I don't violate the, uh, the femoral cortex, so all three answers are reasonable. Uh, there's been some uh, anatomical studies that show anterior medial and inside out retro cutters are more accurate. Uh, so if I was going to have my ACL done, I would do whichever one of those my surgeon felt more comfortable with. But neither one of them is preferable as far as re-rupture rate. Absolutely. Yeah. So even in my short experience, I've, I've been mainly with, uh, you know, one attend sports attendant so far. And, you know, so you mainly get to see only one approach at this. But like you say, I think uh, it depends on what's best in that particular surgeon's hand is probably what they should, you know, what they they'll go with, with there not being a necessarily a right or wrong to this. What have you seen? What is the uh, surgeon you've worked with? How have they drilled the femur? Um, most times he, he does it a certain way. He can actually get to the position that he won't actually by doing it uh, transtibial. Okay. Yeah. There are some flexible reamers that do increase the accuracy. And, you know, some people get really good results with that. Um, while the studies have shown anterior medial portal and, in, and outside in might be a little more accurate, people still get very, very good results with, with transtibial as long as they take the time to, to get on the anatomic um, footprint. And I think that's a completely reasonable way to do it if there's good experience with it. Yeah. I, yeah. So like I say, I, I do think it's probably a more someone who's done it a lot. Cause I, from my just reading, I know a lot of times, like you say, it can end up being vertical too vertical. Uh, but his look 
you know, textbook most times when I see it. So I'm like, okay, great. Um, yeah, absolutely. So that was, that was a great, uh, summary for the adult on how this would kind of go as far as the reconstruction part of, uh, ACL tears. What are some of the considerations that we have to keep in mind for the pediatric population? This is a growing field uh, for many reasons, and you can't go to an orthopedic surgery sports meeting without having a lot of talks on it. But with sports specialization, uh, with kids becoming better athletes, younger and focusing on one sports, having some muscular imbalance and less variety, we unfortunately are seeing younger and younger patients tear their ACL, or at least we're able to better recognize it. Uh, most males don't enter the endoskeletal maturity till about between 14 and 16, females between 12 and 14. And I've seen ACL tears. My youngest patient's been eight years old. So we need to know how to recognize ACL tears in younger patients. Uh, there's been some good studies out of Europe showing in the past, we would wait till the patient was skeletal mature, and then we'd fix their ACL then. But you, you can't trust kids at all. And I think they found that 75% of these patients, by the time they were 14, had very severe meniscus or chondral injuries. So not having an ACL makes you more susceptible for these injuries and waiting, unless you can wrap the kid in bubble wrap and not let them pivot or run around for a couple of years, that's not really a reasonable option. So I split um, the kids into five different categories, depending on their male or female, their age, their bone age, their sexual maturity, um, their tanner staging. I get hand x-rays to see their bone age. I ask the females if they've begun having their period yet. I ask the males if they have secondary sexual characteristics yet. So there's a lot that goes into it. Just trying to, to put it bluntly, because um, there is a time limit on this podcast, and I actually, I gave an hour talk just on pediatric ACL reconstructions last year at um, the AOSSM meeting. If it's a female between 12 and 14, if it's a male between 14 and 16, most likely they're in the final stages of growth. They don't have that much more. Um, you know from your studies, the distal femur has anywhere between 8 to 10 millimeters of growth a year. Proximal tibia is usually more 5 to 6 millimeters a year. Once they hit that final stage, you can do their ACL like an adult, and they're going to have fairly minimal, if any, growth loss, certainly not enough to be applicable and, and cause any problem, and you can be pretty safe. But once they get below that, if I've got the 10 to 12-year-old female, if I've got the um, 12 to 14-year-old male who probably has two to three years of growth left. I really worry about that distal femoral growth plate. I will actually do something called physeal sparing. And I personally think this is easier from outside in where I will drill. I'll do the tibia the same. I might make it a little more of a vertical tunnel and I'll do it underhand because they found that the heat from the drill can actually cause growth arrest. Well, if you do it from hand, you eliminate the heat. Mm -hmm. But I will not go above or, or through or proximal to their distal femoral growth plate. So under x-ray, I'll drill my pin for the femur. I'll visualize it under x-ray to make sure I have more than enough room between the growth plate. And then I'll drill this. And this is called partial um, physeal sparing. So no matter what, I'm not going through the growth plate. I'm not going to arrest their growth. Um, and they're not going to have any shortening in their limb because of the ACL tear. And then I use a soft tissue graft. That's a situation where, for instance, I had an 11-year-old female basketball player last week who had not started having her period yet, who had wide open growth plates. Um, so I did a soft tissue hamstring partial physeal sparing ACL to protect that distal femoral uh, growth plate. Um, and one more, one more consideration is that unfortunately I had a, an eight-and-a-half-year-old male who had an accident and did have an ACL tear. Um, I did reconstruct his, and I also did partial physeal sparing on the tibia. This is a little more 
difficult because there's less room in the epiphysis and the tibia than the femur. But if you drill an appropriate angle, you do it under x-ray and you double check, you can spare that growth plate as well uh, and do an effective ACL reconstruction in a pediatric patient. And the last thing I'll, I'll offer is uh, Coker out of uh, Boston Children's has a great paper that if you have the six, seven, eight, nine-year-old, very, very rare patient with an ACL tear and you want to avoid drilling in the joint, uh, you can actually tenodice the IT band from the lateral aspect, extraarticular. You can take that IT band, you can weave it through the joint and then and place it and secure it on the outside of the tibia. And it will act like a fairly good stabilizer to the ACL until they hit skeletal maturity. Then they may need a normal ACL reconstruction at that point. So uh, for you guys, and this might be a little above a testable level for a resident, this is getting to the minutia, but if you ever have a young patient in your clinic with a torn ACL, find out their age, find out their height, the height of mom and dad, get a hand x-ray and ask your radiologist to give you a bone age, ask them about se a secondary sexual characteristics, ask the female if they've started their period and usually how long ago. Females usually start the period about two years before they end skeletal maturity for growing. If it's a male, find out they're growing axillary or pubic um, hair, see if their voice has changed. Take all that information together, try to tanner stage them, and based on that, see how you can give them a new ACL, whether you do a traditional, partial, fully physial sparing, or do an IT band uh, tenodesis technique. I, I think that was great. Um, I think that was a great overview. And uh, just something I just want to touch on really quick. You know, I was reading on this. First, for that IT band, I, I looked and I saw the picture of that. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, but I saw that kind of the threshold for growth disturbance when, when we're looking at these different pediatric cases is, has to do with like more of the cross-sectional area of the physis. And if you get between a certain percentage of that uh, with different millimeter tunnels, that this can lead to different levels of growth disturbance. And I thought that was... Um, You're uh, absolutely right. And it's hard because different people's tibias and femurs are different sizes. They, they tell you never to go above 12 millimeters. And I've, I could tell you, I've done NFL players and I've never gone above a 12 millimeter. So I, I think that's good food for thought, but it's usually not applicable. But on the other end, if you use a graph that's below eight, eight and a half millimeters, you have an increased chance for re-rupture. So I think it's a fine line you walk, but I think if you're between an eight and a 10, 10 and a half, 11, I think you're okay. But like you said, cross-sectional area is key and you don't want to make too big of a, a circular socket across the growth plate because the uh, diameter of the socket, the heat from the drill and the angle you drill at, if you do have to go across the growth plate, you want to go vertical, not horizontal, because you will uh, decrease the amount of area you, you drill out of that growth plate. If you take all these factors in consideration, have good technical skill, there's very few um, case studies about growth disturbance in an ACL reconstruction. I think we can keep it that way as long as we remember that. Right. And, and I think this was overall a great talk. I think we did a great job in, in talking about um, talking about tunnel placement, graph type. I think this is a very thorough and in-depth talk. And I, I hope everybody listening to this was at least taking notes or, you know, if you're working out listening to this, I hope you, you stopped and, and wrote, jotted something down or you made a mental note. Um, just wanted to say, Dr. Cook, thanks so much for coming on and, and talking about ACLs and reconstructions and some of the different things we want to be on the lookout for. Really do appreciate you coming on this show. Well, I want to thank you. You guys are doing a fantastic job with this podcast. Um, as junior residents, I applaud you. Keep up the good work. And if you or anyone ever has a question on sports medicine or anything with ACLs, uh, you can uh, contact me and I'd be more than happy to talk. Sure. And we always, um, at the end of our episodes, we always say if, if there is a way or a way that people can find you, if you have social media or a website or anything, 
um, how do how can people kind of get in contact with you? I have I, I do use social media uh, both to talk about cases and, and education and keeping in touch on Instagram. I'm uh, Dr. Chris Cook, which is Dr. Chris Cook. My name is C O O K E with an E on the end of it. Uh, Dr. Christopher Cook is my professional Facebook page as well, and and uh, Dr. Chris Cook at Gmail is my my email address. And you know it it's such a it's such a long path from high school to undergrad to med school to residency to fellowship to practice. I had a lot of mentors and help along the way. And whether you have some questions or or just want to you know talk about struggles or triumphs, I'm definitely always up for for a listening ear and, and any recommendations I can give you. And we've got a fantastic residency and fellowship here in Detroit, Michigan. So if you're ever interested, I'm on the admissions committee for both of those, and I'm always looking for good, uh, hardworking men and women who want to continue to practice great orthopedic surgery and sports medicine. And, and you guys are, are the future. The research you do will allow us to do better procedures in five and ten years than we do now. So I applaud you guys. And if there's anything I can ever do to help, please let me know. Now, thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. Um, I really enjoyed re-listening to this episode as well as recording it in the first place. Um, you know, kind of dove a little bit deeper into ACLs and kind of how we, you know, our surgical planning, different graft choice. I hope you guys enjoyed it a lot. If you did, please go and leave a review in iTunes or whatever you listen to, if it's Google Play or Stitcher. Um, don't forget to follow us at Nailed It Ortho. Um, on Instagram. You can also email us at nailedittortho at gmail.com. And uh, again, big thanks to uh, Dr. Cook for coming out and uh, talking today. Until next time.